Well, good morning. Good to have you here. If you're a visitor, let me add my welcome as well. It's great to have you with us this morning. And today's an exciting day because we're starting a new series. And actually, we're, we're almost starting a series of series. I'll explain that in a second. We're going to be looking at a book, not just for the next couple of months, but we're then going to be coming back to it. Uh, over the next probably 12 months or so. And so this book is going to become really significant for us. Actually, uh, the book we're going to look at is massively significant because it started a revolution. If you can try to imagine being back uh, in the day when when Jesus was around and then Jesus left and went back to heaven, uh, for a period of time, maybe 20, 30 years, it was relatively easy to hear about Jesus. There were the apostles, the disciples traveling around on their speaking tours and doing what they were doing. And you could access that. And if you wanted to check up on what they said, then you could go find an eyewitness. And it wasn't, wasn't hard. There were a lot of eyewitnesses around. And they were living uh, in, in that region and beyond. They spread out a little bit. You could find somebody that was there when Jesus taught that message. Or, or that was there when Jesus raised Lazarus. Or, or was there after Jesus himself was raised from the dead. And so you could go to the eyewitnesses and you could check it out for yourself. And there was no question about whether this stuff was true or not, because there was plenty of people to reaffirm to you, yep, that's exactly the way it was. But 30-ish years later, people were starting to die off. Not least the apostles, who were really uh, the target of persecution. And they were starting to get killed in bigger numbers, so that probably during the 60s, the vast majority of the apostles were killed. And so one of the apostles, Peter, had been preaching and teaching in different places, telling stories about what he'd seen and what Jesus had done, and and just an amazing uh, repertoire, obviously, of stories. And he had an associate who was with him, and as Peter was either coming to the end or had already been killed, the people would have been saying to his associate, please, would you write that stuff down? And so John Mark, we know him as Mark, he was, he was a friend of Peter's, he traveled with Paul, and so telling the stories of Peter with the influence of Paul, but most importantly, inspired by God, Mark picked up his pen, and he took a piece of papyrus or whatever it was, and he started to write, and what he wrote started a revolution. It was a literary revolution, in the sense that what he wrote was the first ever document of its kind. Imagine starting a whole new genre. That's probably like inventing the iPad, isn't it? Just starting something completely new. He took his pen and he said, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus. And that word good news, uh, often we have it in our Bibles written gospel. That word became the label for a type of document. A document that writes about the life of Christ and especially the final week of Christ. You'll find that as you look at the, the four Gospels that we have, that basically they follow the same pattern. That is, they have uh, an introduction that goes for quite a few chapters and then Jesus gets to Jerusalem for that final week. Uh, and he's in Jerusalem and he's teaching and he gets arrested and there's trials and the cross, the crucifixion. And then he's raised from the dead. And that really is where all the Gospels are going. Is to focus us in on that. And everything before is like an extended introduction. And so Mark took his pen and he wrote his document. And it literally started a revolution. Just a few years later, Matthew got hold of it. And Matthew said, this is good stuff. 
And he took out his notebook from the teachings that he'd heard and he said, right, let me write my own. And he took Mark's and he took his notebook and he wrote Matthew's gospel. And around the same time, Luke got hold of Mark as well. And Luke said, this is good stuff. Now, I wasn't there, but I can interview the eyewitnesses. And he chased every eyewitness he could find. And he combined that with Mark and he created his gospel. And then, oh, 20, 30 years later, John read all three of them, I think. And he said, these are good. This is good stuff. But I want to kind of give a different emphasis. I want to bring out some of the stuff that uh, is not emphasized or not quite so in your face as it could be. And so John wrote his gospel. And that's what we have in our Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four documents that have transformed the world. Four documents that give us an insight into who Jesus was and why it was that he came to the earth. And so as we look at these, it's important that we realize we're not just looking at some kind of ancient document that was called good news back then. This was good news then, and it's good news now. It's good news for us. And as we spend these next couple of months in the first chapters of Mark, it's my prayer that we will encounter in these pages the person who stands at the center of all human history. The one whose story history is, the the central character in the great epic of uh, human history is Jesus Christ, right? And actually, he is the central character in the story of Trinity Chippenham too. This church, as we move forward, it's a privilege to be part of something new like this. But as we move forward, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's going to be about Jesus, It's about what he does. Hopefully, in the future, people will say, let me tell you the story of Trinity Chippenham. This is what Jesus did in those years. That's what we want, isn't it? We want Jesus to be the center. We want Jesus to be the focus. So let's let's turn to that gospel. Let's look at it together. Mark's gospel. It's the second one in our New Testaments. If you need to use table of contents, don't feel uh, in the slightest bit embarrassed about that. That's okay. But you've got Matthew, and then Mark, then Luke, then John, towards the end of the Bible. And this morning, we're going to start, we're going to begin at the beginning, and we're going to look at the first 13 verses. And really, what I want us to think about is, is a very simple question. If, if Mark says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, then why is Jesus good news? Why was Jesus good news then? And more importantly, why is Jesus good news now? So Mark 1, verse 1, he begins with no, no intro. It's almost like he, he doesn't wind up, doesn't warm up, doesn't get going. He just dives straight in. In fact, the beauty of the way Mark begins is that he invites us into something that people within the story don't get. We, we get a glimpse right up front of this is who Jesus is and this is why he's significant. And from next week on, we'll see as we read through these next chapters that everyone in the story is kind of confused about Jesus. Who is he? What's, what's going on? What difference does he make? But Mark wants us to know up front, no, this is who he is and he makes the world of difference. So let's look at it and let me encourage you Uh, As you have these next weeks, take the chance to read Mark. Read it through. It takes about an hour and a half, two hours, depends how fast you read. Read the whole thing through and get a feel for the story. Read it multiple times because hopefully as we do that, as we spend time in Mark's gospel, we won't just become experts in Mark. That's not important. We'll encounter Christ. That is important. And as we encounter him, as we meet him, 
hopefully we'll find our lives being changed the way they were intended to be changed. So look at the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Then he tells us two things, Christ, the son of God, two titles. Now, Christ is not Jesus's surname, right? This is a title. It means anointed one. It means the one that God would put his spirit on uh, to fulfill a certain role, to be the, the promised deliverer. And so as you read through the Bible, you read about uh, the idea of the Christ, the anointed one. And Mark's saying, this is him. This is the one that everything has been pointing towards. More than that, he's not just the Christ. He's also the son of God. And we read that. And our response may be, ooh, that's a big title. Or it may be just, well, yeah, we're used to it. We've heard it lots of times. But Actually, the the title Son of God can go in a couple of different directions. It could be the ultimate title for anyone. The the, the fact that this is the, the very person who is the Son of God the Father, which, of course, is true of Jesus. But as Jews were listening or reading, they would have said, well, Son of God is a title that could be used for an angel. There's places in the Old Testament where it talks about the sons of God in reference to angels. Or, or it could be the title of the king of Israel. And so they could say, that's not such a big deal. You Christians are overstating things. You're getting too excited. What, what, what's the truth? What's the reality? Is Jesus just uh, an anointed king of Israel? Because if he was, then it is good news then. Or is Jesus... The uh, anointed son of God forever. Is that who he is? Well, Mark doesn't want to leave us guessing. He doesn't want to leave us with a, a sense of, of uh, a lack of clarity. And so for the rest of this section, he's going to unveil to us just how high of a title he intends that to be. This really is Jesus, the son of God, the, the one who is God in the flesh. And so let me read this next section to you. And then we'll think about it together. So from verse 2 down to verse 8. Mark says this, just to clarify, just to make sure we get it. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt round his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what we have here then is, is really two prophets. We've got Isaiah and then we've got John the Baptist. And Mark is going to give us both of these men to point to who Jesus is, to make sure that we grasp just how uh, unique and how special Jesus actually is. The fact is, the reason is, Jesus is good news because he is God coming to rescue us. So let's think about that uh, in terms of the two prophets. First of all, Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet that lived 
700 years before this was written. And uh, actually what Mark does here is he combines several, at least three different passages, but he gives the label to it, Isaiah, because I think the main influence is from Isaiah chapter 40. Now we haven't got time to, to go over Isaiah in detail, but let me, let me say this, that was a key, key moment in the book of Isaiah. You've got the the nation of Israel, God's people, and they were going to be taken off into exile. They were going to be taken away. This was really bad news for them. And Isaiah gives them this incredible message of hope. And he says, literally, uh, let me read these verses to you in chapter 40. Right at the start of this great message of hope, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. The way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway. And, And it's the idea of, okay, this nation of people are being taken away they're they're being put in prison effectively in a foreign land but that's not the end of the story they're going to be brought home and who is it that's going to bring them home it's going to be the lord and so as you're reading that in isaiah what he does is he he puts lord in all capitals you ever notice that in the old testament l-o-r-d all caps that's the kind of the jewish way of avoiding uh, stating The actual word that's written there. The actual word there is uh, the four letters that represent the name of God. You may have heard the the label Jehovah or Yahweh. That's those four letters. And we say that in church quite easily. Jews would never pronounce the name. They would never uh, state the name. They'd avoid writing the name. That that was the most holy. And as they copied the scriptures, if they wrote Y-H-W-H, throw the pen away, get a new pen. Because you can never write anything else after that with the same pen. I mean, this was the holy name of God himself. And you see what Isaiah is saying is this. "You're, You're a nation off in exile. Prepare a motorway, smooth out the hills and the valleys and and make a motorway so that you can be rescued. Who's going to do the rescuing? Well, make, uh, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, Further down, he says, the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And here comes John the Baptist in the wilderness And he's quoting that passage. What he's saying is, I'm preparing the way. And after me, who's coming after me? Yahweh is coming. The God over all, the true God, the God who created everything, the God of the Old Testament, the God who inspired the prophets. He is coming. That's huge. And actually, you know, for us, it's it's something that that we just kind of go, yeah, that's cool. Yahweh's coming. Maybe you've been to church for a while, you know, the idea of, of Christmas, the incarnation, God became flesh and dwelt among us. It kind of gets a little bit normal for us, but for Jews, there is no way they're going to buy into that idea easily. Jews in the first century, they were absolutely committed to the fact that there is one God, the Lord our God, he is one, there is no other God, and he is different from us. And they didn't easily buy the idea that God took on flesh and and came and walked on this earth with us. And so if, as is the case, the first generation of Christians were Jewish background, How is it that they went from absolutely staunch, committed, no way is Yahweh ever coming into this world to walk on two legs. How is it that then they're worshipping Jesus as Lord, as Yahweh? Something must have broken through 
right? Something must have disarmed all of their objections. And I would say, yes, it did. And what broke through was the life of Jesus. It was watching Jesus and meeting Jesus and hearing Jesus and seeing Jesus in action that that broke through those barriers. And so what we've got for the rest of Mark is exactly what we need. We need to see what Mark's going to give us, the life of Jesus, to encounter him and to see him for ourselves, to hear his voice and to recognize who he is. It's, It's hard for us today to believe in God walking on the earth. It was harder for them. But they believed because of the power of the evidence in front of them. You know, the thing is, when you encounter God in the person of Jesus Christ, when you encounter him, you encounter a love that is greater than any love you've ever encountered before. It's as if we've lived our lives uh, just kind of bouncing off each other like a, a bunch of snooker balls, basically ignoring each other because we're so caught up with ourselves. I am the center of my universe and I love me and nothing can love me more than I love me. And then you meet Jesus and you go, oh my goodness, there's a God who loves me that much. It transforms lives to meet Jesus, to encounter a love so much greater than ours and and also to encounter a God who steps in and suffers. Isn't that an amazing thought? A God who enters into our pain into our struggles, into our difficulties, into all the the things that make life tough. He knows what that's like. I came across this uh, verse. I'm not much of a poetry man, as you probably know, but this verse I thought was uh, an impressive one. It says, The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And no God has wounds, but you alone. Isn't that beautiful? We, we have a God who stepped into our world to face what we face, to suffer the wounds that we suffer in order to rescue us. That's so significant that, that uh, Mark gives us right at the front end of his book. Let me make sure you're getting this. This is the son of God. This is Yahweh himself. And he quotes from the Old Testament prophets. And then he gives us John the Baptist. And he describes John the Baptist. John the Baptist was kind of weird, right? Have you ever thought about it? He was, he was wearing camel's hair and uh, he had this uh, leather belt and he ate locusts and honey, lived out in the wilderness, preached this message. And, and somehow there was this massive uh, uprising of people from Jerusalem and all Judea. They were all flooding out to him. Flooding is probably not the right word because he's in the wilderness. But they headed out to him and he's preaching and they're responding and they're being baptized by him. Now, what's the significance of all that? He was basically saying, this nation is a mess and you need to encounter God again. And the people were saying, you're right, we do. And we identify with your message. We are sinners. We need God. You ever thought about why it is in the Bible? And don't worry if you haven't. It's not important. But why why it is in the Bible that God seems to encounter his people in the wilderness? What's the deal with wilderness? We don't really do wilderness in this country, do we? Let me at your garden for a couple of weeks and I could create wilderness. But but we don't really know wilderness in this country, do we? Everything's kind of green and damp all the time. But true wilderness, that's a place that's arid and dry. A place where there's no resources at all. No food. Typically no drink. 
It's a place where you kind of come to the end of your resources. And that is why God tends to meet people in the wilderness, I think. I remember some years ago, in fact, it could even be, it was the start of July, so this could be the anniversary of a key moment in my life. It was the time I almost died in the wilderness. It's not quite as exciting as I'm introducing it to be, but I was with a friend and we were in San Diego and uh, we were visiting, we decided to visit a museum and the museum was outside of the town, outside of the city and it's kind of out in the desert. If you've ever been to San Diego, just it's desert. I mean, we're talking tumbleweed cactus plants, right? And we went out to this museum and the guy who dropped us off said, how are you going to get back? Because I'm sorry, I can't stay. We said, not a problem. We'll get a lift with someone. And so we went to this museum and had a great time for a couple of hours looking around this museum and then thought, right, we should leave. Who can we catch a lift with? There was nobody there. I mean, literally, we were the only people we saw for the hours that we were there. It wasn't the most popular museum in the world. And so we went to the receptionist and we said, is there a bus? She looked at us a bit funny, recognized the foreign accent, I thought, typical European question. And so she said, well, there is a bus stop, and it's about half a mile that way. We said, okay, thanks very much. So we, we headed out, and we walked to the bus stop, and we stood, and we waited. We drank our water, all of it. And then no bus came. In fact, no car came, nothing came, just tumbleweed. And we said, well, this is a bit ridiculous. So we looked at the sign a bit more closely and realized that actually we'd missed the daily bus. It had come about half an hour before we got there. So if we stayed, we would be there for another 23 hours. And so we said, well, there's nothing more we can do. Let's walk until a car comes. We can hitchhike. We knew which way to go, thankfully. And we walked and walked and walked for, I forget, it was at least two hours. Two hours in San Diego desert heat. The sun beating down, tumbleweeds, cactus, nothing else. I mean, I was starting to hallucinate and imagine, you know, uh, the rattlesnakes and all that kind of stuff. But there was nothing there. And after about 20 minutes of walking, we stopped talking to each other. We just walked. Just kind of dragged ourselves along this road because our water was gone and the fear was starting to rise. Just realizing I'm desperately thirsty and I've got no access to water got no mobile phone. There's no car to be seen. There's nothing out here. And by the time we had gone for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, our fear levels were really starting to get high. And I'll tell you, we were praying. And I think that's the point of the wilderness is that God wants people to get to the place where they realize they've got nothing to bring to him. Nothing to rescue themselves with. They're completely at the end of all resource. And if God doesn't come through, they're finished. And that's where John the Baptist was. And that's where the people went because they acknowledged we need what you're talking about. We need God to step in for us. You know, I think we need to to ponder that a little bit as we live in a very affluent, very comfortable life, don't we? All of us are among the richest people in the world. And it's so easy for us to kind of do life and career and income and luxuries and hobbies and then add Jesus in. Almost like a sort of vitamin supplement. Like we can do life and then we add Jesus for Sundays. God's not really into that. God's not a huge fan of us doing life and then adding him in as a little bonus benefit. And it may well be that God wants to take us as individuals, as families, as a church to a place where we realize we desperately need you, Lord. Maybe he already has. Let me encourage us. Let's be the kind of people that God doesn't have to break us to get us to be responsive. 
That we would recognize, even just from the, the word that we hear preached, that, oh Lord, I need you. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Apart from you, we can do nothing. As we head forwards and, and talk about evangelism and, and different ministries in the church, Lord, apart from you, we can reach nobody. God wants us to recognize our wilderness state before him. And, and also just thinking about that as we move forward and we encounter people, the reality is that the people who will be responsive to the gospel typically won't be the we've got it all together crowd, right? The, the people who have got good careers and good wealth and good pension plans and everything's kind of working the way it should. Those typically will not be the people that are massively responsive to a message of hope and a message of good news. We're going to be meeting people who by God's providence, by God's design, have been graciously led to a place of wilderness in their lives. A place of we desperately need help. And I think we need to be prepared for that. As a church, we need to be in prayer because we don't have the resources, what it takes to care for people who are desperate and who are broken. But those are the people Jesus loves to meet. So let's think about that as we move forward, ourselves and others, and the whole issue of the wilderness. And, and as we look at Mark 1, you've got this wilderness, you've got these people coming, and then you've got John and he's baptizing. It's interesting that if you look into the history of baptism, the Jews had something of a sort of a ritual washing that they would go through, where they would wash their hands and they would do certain rituals in order to prepare themselves to come before God. Gentiles could self-baptize as part of the ritual to become part of the people of Israel. But this is something different. This is someone else doing the baptizing. This is people at the end of their resources coming to John and realizing we need something that we can't do for ourselves. And John's baptizing them. Again, it's true of us. It's true of the people we're going to meet. We cannot self-save. We cannot get our acts together. We cannot be religious. We cannot be good enough, try hard enough, turn our lives around enough. We cannot be diligent enough in keeping some kind of moral code. We simply cannot self-save. And it's going to be people that we encounter who have come to the end of their resources, who realize that I've tried everything and it's failed. It's going to be those kind of people that are going to be in that wilderness experience, isn't it? And we need to be clear ourselves that we're there too. And apart from God, we can do nothing. And we need God to step in. And the good news of Mark 1 is that he has. You see, Isaiah said that there was a voice coming to prepare the way for Yahweh. Coming to rescue his people. John the Baptist was there declaring to the nation, not come to me, I'm the one that can help you. He was pointing beyond himself. He was saying, there's someone coming after me. And he, he is mightier than I. In fact, he is so much in a different league to me that you think I'm impressive because, you know, I'm preaching this message and there's huge crowds that always impresses people. You think I'm special? Listen, compared to the one coming after me, I'm not even in the same category. I may be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He wouldn't have said that. Jesus said that of him. But, but John is saying, you know what? I can't even stoop down and untie his sandal, which is the lowliest, most uh, horrific job for the kind of the, the slave that's worth nothing. He says, I'm not even that good compared to him because the one who's coming after me is in a completely different league to me. In fact, he says at the end there, he says, I baptize you with water. 
he's going to baptize in a completely different way with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Uh, We can chase on through Mark and, and find out. But for the people listening, where would they be looking? As they're there in the wilderness, uh, just kind of desperate for a drink of the River Jordan, let alone to be dunked in it. They're coming to John and they're, they're standing there and they're hearing him say, there's somebody else, there's somebody else. It's the somebody else that they'd be looking for. It's the somebody else that we need to be looking for. It's the Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God who's coming. He's God, Yahweh, in the flesh, stepping into our world to rescue us. We have a God who can speak our mother tongue. We have a God who knows what it is to walk where we walk, to suffer the way we suffer, to experience what we experience. And he wants us to meet him. That's good news. But it goes on. And as Mark continues his introduction to his gospel, he builds on that introduction to say, you don't realize how good news this good news is. And so let me read the next couple of verses. In uh, verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. What we have right there is a glimpse. And it's a a glorious glimpse into the reality of a God who is Trinity. Do you notice that? You've got, uh, do we have all the, the persons of the Trinity there? Well, we've got Jesus coming up out of the water And you've got the spirit descending like a dove and a voice from heaven calling him my beloved son. So that's the voice of the father, the presence of the spirit and the person of the son. This is a glimpse into the Trinity. And so what's the big deal with the Trinity? I mean, it's it's obviously a big deal because we chose it as the name for our church, right? Trinity Chippenham. Why did we choose the name Trinity? Because we believe that Trinity makes all the difference. The fact that God is Trinity changes everything. I'll let you figure out why we chose the name Chippenham for yourselves. But the name Trinity, that's something we want to ponder for a minute. I was listening to, um, actually I was reading a chap uh, called Tim Keller. Some of you may have heard of him. And, And Tim made a very interesting point. He said, sin is solitary. And I thought, I've never thought about that before. Sin is solitary. That is, sin, by definition, stands still. It's motionless. And everything else is forced to orbit around it. Have you noticed that with people? That's kind of our default, isn't it? To be solitary. To stand alone. To never really give ourselves to others. And to expect everything to orbit around us. And that's why the Trinity is so amazing. Because God is not that. God is not some kind of fulcrum, some kind of monadic, singular, standalone center point that can only ever focus on himself and then expects everything else, the whole universe and cosmos, to revolve around him. Instead, he's different to that. Now, a lot of people think God is exactly what I just described. And the reason for that is because they don't really grasp the Trinity. Think about it. If there was, before everything was made, if there was just God and God was one, pure one, no no plurality, no diversity, no other, no father, son, just God, what would he be doing for all eternity? 
What would he be thinking about? Just himself. He'd be completely and utterly self-focused. And it was only after creation that you might then start to have a God who loves. But the Bible tells us and it gives us these moments where the curtains pull back and we catch a glimpse into the reality that actually the God who created everything is a God who loves, a God who gives, a God who moves. And so before anything was made, God was loving, the Father was loving the Son, and the Son was loving the Father, and the Spirit was the, the bond and the communication of that love between the Father and the Son. And that's so entirely different. Now, we live as people in a fallen world where we've bought into the lie that I am the center of the universe and you need to serve me. You revolve around me, and so if you want to talk about something, that's fine. But as soon as I can, I'm going to get it back onto me again, because after all, I am the most important. And so we live our lives in this kind of stationary, everybody orbit around me. And then we project that onto the clouds and say, God must be me on steroids. That's what God must be like, a God who can only ever think of himself. A God who is like a great glory vacuum, sucking all worship in his direction. And the Bible gives us these moments where it says, not so fast. That's exactly the opposite of what God is like. If, if sin is stationary and everything orbits around it, then what is God like as a trinity? Well, Keller says the best analogy that he's heard, and I'm happy to go along with it. If Keller says it, I'm with him. And I, I see it biblically, more importantly. He says, you know what? God is like a dance. The father moving always toward the son. The son moving continuously towards the father. Never a selfish movement. Never a self-centered orbit around me moment. And God is this dynamic, moving, giving, loving kind of a God. And we get that here, don't we? Look at what it says. As Jesus is coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn open. Literally, it's, it's like there's this great ripping as God just wants to get to his son. And the spirit descends on him like a dove. And the voice comes from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. It's not often we get a voice from heaven. And when we do, we hear things like that. That should thrill our hearts. That at the center of the universe, at the center of the cosmos, there's a God who doesn't just draw everyone to himself. He speaks of his son. Father, you're amazing. Have you met my son? He's my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. And if we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're amazing. You're the Alpha and the Omega. And we start piling on the praise. What's Jesus going to say? I just do what my father tells me. My father's wonderful. I want you to know my father. Father, you're the God who sourced everything. And yet, have you met my son? Isn't it beautiful that God is not grabbing, but giving? He's not static, but he moves towards those that he loves. And the ultimate expression of that is this person, Jesus Christ, God who has moved towards us to express the love of God in our direction, to win us and to draw us in. From the outside, this was Jesus from Nazareth, normal looking man from a very normal place. It's sort of Nazareth i.e. nowhere, comma, Galilee. It's just a no, nothing town on the way to nowhere in particular. And Jesus came there so that he could stand alongside people like us. No offense, but I mean, Chippenham's hardly the center of the cosmos, is it? But this is exactly the kind of place Jesus gets excited about. The kind of place that he'd say, yeah, I'm from Chippenham, England. Chippenham, can anything good come from there? 
You see, that's the kind of God that we have. A God who moves to where we are. A God who says, I want to be identified with you. And a God who says, I am prepared to do the rescuing. I'm going to do what it takes to come and to get you and to bring you home. To bring you back into the embrace of the Trinity. To bring you back into the dance that you were created for. Giving of yourself in response to one who gives of himself because he loves. And and Mark gives us all that in a three verse glimpse. You see, it's good news that Jesus came because Jesus is God, Yahweh, coming to rescue us. And the good news is the kind of God that he is. He's a triune, self-giving sacrificial God who loves us. And then thirdly, we see another reason why Jesus is good news. The last couple of verses here, it tells us in verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. It's just a glimpse. In in Matthew and in Luke, we get this detailed explanation of the temptation of uh, Christ and all that happened there. Mark just gives us this little glimpse that Jesus was out there. The spirit drove him out. Jesus, this is the father's will. Go to the wilderness. And Jesus went out further into the wilderness. And for 40 days, he was engaged in this battle, fighting against the enemy of our souls. And actually, he was fighting our fight. We see in the other Gospels that what Satan came to Jesus with was the very temptation that Satan came to Adam and Eve with in the first place. He came to them and said, let everything revolve around you. Why don't you be like God? Why don't you be the center of the universe? And and I can arrange some benefits for you. And Jesus was having none of that. Because Jesus knew that this was the fight that he had to fight. It was our fight. And he fought it. And we're given this, this momentary glimpse, this brief, briefest of comments that, that there were angels ministering to him. Obviously, it was a tough fight. And there was wild beasts out there. This was a place of danger. I wonder if, as Mark wrote this, he deliberately included the, the wild animals. I wonder if, in his mind, he was thinking, you know what? People who are going to read my gospel in the 60s AD, some of them are being led out into the middle of a coliseum where there are beasts. And I want them to know that Jesus has even gone there. He knows what you've gone through. He's come into this world to rescue you and he has fought the fight that is your fight, our fight, and he ultimately is successful. You see, we don't know that in verse 13. We just know that he was there. But the rest of the gospel spells out just how far he had to travel, just how much he had to fight. And ultimately, over the whole gospel, there's this shadow cast by the cross because that's where he's headed. And as Jesus ultimately ends up in the Garden of Gethsemane, with drops of blood coming out of his head as he prayed fervently to his father, is there another way? I'm going to do your will. I want to do what you want me to do. Jesus ultimately fought the great battle and went to the cross. He fought our fight because that's the kind of God we have. The kind of God who steps in and moves towards us and loves us and embraces us and says, I love you this much and brings us into the communion that he shares and delights in with his father. Jesus is good news and he's good news now because as we read through Mark, my prayer is that we won't just read stories from uh, 2000 years ago. My, My prayer is that actually we will come face to face with Jesus and that we will encounter him. And as we encounter him, 
will discover what so many have discovered for 2,000 years. You don't meet Jesus and stay the same. It's not an option. Now, there's plenty of space here at Trinity. We want to give all sorts of patience. You have question after question. There's no rush. But ultimately, know this. Ultimately, as you read the Gospels, ultimately, as you encounter Christ, the one option that doesn't remain is to remain the same. People, when they met Jesus, either became really, really angry and wanted to kill him. Or they became really fearful and they wanted to flee as far away from him as they could. Or they fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Because of the kind of God that he is, the kind of God that he represents. That's my prayer. That as we go through Mark and as we look at it together and as we read it in our homes. Let's pray from the bottom of our hearts. Lord, I, I need to encounter you. I want to see you for who you are. Would you give me a glimpse that would change me and and I want to worship you. I want to praise you because you are such an awesome God and this truly is the best of news. The good news for now is that Jesus is the triune God who has stepped into our world to rescue us, to fight our fight and to bring us back into the community that is our God.